I think it's pretty obvious that this is a pretty contentious election season, yeah? Anybody notice that? Anyone? Don't worry, I'm not going to get into that too much. Um, <laughs> Amen. From the mouths of babes, there's a, there's a verse that says, God speaks to the mouths of children. So, um, but... I was reminded of an email I got actually last election cycle because it sort of, I think, fits a lot what's going on now and kind of shows something about who we are in America. So my friend sent me this poll that he found in an article attached to it, and it was written by John Blake of CNN, and the title of the poll was, uh, the title of the article was, Poll, 52% Approve of God's Job Performance. And then he went on to say this, if you think voters are in a cranky mood over politics, a new poll suggests that some of the dissatisfaction may run deeper. God's job performance has trouble measuring up to many Americans' expectations, according to a poll by public policy polling, a Democratic firm based in North Carolina. Only 52% of Americans approve of God's job performance, the survey found, though just 9% disapprove. The polling question that prompted this curious response was, quote, if God exists, do you approve or disapprove of he, she, its performance? And it went on to say this, when asked to evaluate God on some of the issues, that's important during the election season, right? You've got to find out what people say on the issues. Um, God's best rating was for creating the universe, 75, or 71% approval rating there. <laughs> It also said that, they, that Americans approve of his handling of the animal kingdom, 56% approve, and even his hand, handling of natural disasters, which was at 50%. Uh, there's another guy named Dino Grandoni who cited the poll in an article that he wrote uh, for the Atlantic Wire, and he said this, On the bright side for the Almighty's re-election chances, God is still more popular than House Speaker John Boehner. That'll tell you when the poll was done. <laughs> And both Republicans and Democrats in Congress, all of whom polled at 33% in the same poll. And good news for God, um, the polling for Democrats and Republicans has gone down since then. Last I heard, it was in the teens and sometimes Siegel digits. So um, that's a good sign for him come November. Um, so at least God's got that going for him. But the reason I mentioned this article is it seems to indicate that as Americans, we have a pretty high opinion of ourselves. And when I say Americans, I mean those of us that live in the United States. America is a much bigger place uh, than just this country. Uh, but we have a high opinion of ourselves. So high, in fact, that although we probably would never say it out loud, or maybe even admit it to ourselves, we kind of think that we can do a better job or have as much wisdom about how things should work in the universe, according to the poll, as even God. And I wonder if that doesn't point to maybe just a little bit of hubris or pride that's a part of our culture and who we think we are the best, right? So if we're looking to understand, here's why I mentioned this, who God has made us to be, what he's made us to do, which is the major theme of these last five weeks and today, I think we have a challenge if we think that God's ideas are not necessarily better than our own in terms of who we are and what we're supposed to do with our lives. And I don't think we often think of it this way, but when push comes to shove, 
when we're faced with challenging, disappointing, painful, or threatening situations, I feel like this perspective tends to come out. And Peter, I think, is a perfect example of this. So for the last five weeks, we've been following the life and the story of Peter and his interactions with Jesus. As Jesus takes him through this journey of discovery, finding out who he is, what he's made to do, and putting people around him, putting Peter in a community that can support each other and accomplish those things. So Peter is a real big example, I think, of some of this hubris that maybe if we really take a good look at ourselves, maybe we fall prey to as well. Because more than a few times, and we've seen it in our stories to this point, Peter tells Jesus that he's wrong. Have you noticed this? Uh, Check this verse out for us. This is Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus told them, speaking to all the disciples, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. So here's Peter telling Jesus straight out, you are wrong. I know better than you. That will never happen. I will never disown you. But if you know the story, Peter was horribly wrong. Horribly wrong. Peter actually does deny that he knows Jesus three times. And the last time is the worst. So it's at night. They're sitting around this campfire. The first two times he's asked if he knows Jesus, it's by a slave girl who has little to no power in that society. Zero. Negative power, if anything. And he says, no, I never met him. And finally, a third person asks him. And Peter says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The last denial to Jesus' face. Where do you go from there? I think this is a a, a great story for us because we're talking about big things. You know, sometimes it can be small, but some of the bigger themes are who are you and what are you made to do? Some of those are big ideas, at least for you. And we've said already that the journey's not going to be easy. We've looked at things that can help us persevere through the tough things. We've talked about that. But what about when we totally, totally, totally blow it? When who we are comes into question, how could I ever do that? How could I ever make such a mistake? So where do you go from there? Today's passage is about that. Notice there's a pattern for Peter, too. So it might be good to listen because this may not just happen once in your life. Week one, Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus. He says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Jesus goes on to say, I'm going to make you a fisher of people. Week two, after learning of Jesus' plan to be crucified, Peter rebukes him. You're wrong, no. Week three, 
Peter has a great idea of, despite what Jesus' mission is, to build these little tabernacles on the top of a mountain and just live up there with Jesus. Week five, Jesus comes to wash Peter's feet. We looked at this last week. Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. This week, I will never disown you. Peter seems to always have a better idea of what Jesus should or shouldn't do. At one point, in one of our stories, we saw this. God literally shouts at him from a cloud that has descended around them. And he says to Peter, James, and John, This is Jesus, my son. Listen to him. But it's hard. And I think what Peter deals with is something that we all deal with. This is a common human experience. This isn't Peter the doofus. This is Peter the human being. This is Peter who's just like you and me. This is the reason that we're following the story of Peter is because he's someone that we can relate to. This is Peter who loved Jesus. This is Peter who'd left everything to follow him. This is Peter who wanted to please Jesus. But this is Peter who has too high of an opinion of his own wisdom. Why is this important in this series? Well, the question, who am I? If we think we know better than Jesus, we can lose touch with who we really are. So in this first story, in in week one, Peter says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. That's how he identified himself. It wasn't that he didn't have sin in his life. It's just like that was who he was. We're trying to think about what is my purpose. When hubris, when pride gets in there, when we think that we know more than we do, when we think that we have more wisdom than what we know God is asking from us, we miss what we're supposed to do in life. Peter wanted to stay up on a mountaintop with Jesus. Peter did not want Jesus to go to the cross. But Jesus' mission was down in the valley, through the cross, bringing renewal through his sacrifice. He wasn't to build a resort around himself where people could come and visit. Who is my team? We have too high of opinion of our own wisdom. We can alienate ourselves from the people around us who are supposed to be there to help us. In this passage, Peter says, everyone else may turn away, but I won't. How do you think that attitude plays in community? Pride. It's one, not the only, but one major thing that can keep us from the journey that Jesus is calling us to or get us off track. So today, we're going to look at the aftermath, the where do we go from here, what happens to Peter next, the aftermath of prideful perspectives. But we're also going to see how Jesus can sustain us in these times when we feel like the biggest failures and fuel our lives. So let's read the story here. This is John chapter 21. It's a little longer, but uh, it's a good story. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did... 
They were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning, a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon and Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. And none of his disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, You know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the type of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And what can we learn from this? We can learn a lot more than I could ever possibly dream of getting into in our sermon today, but there's a few things I think can be particularly helpful in the context of what we've been talking about. The first is this. Jesus will challenge our pride. Jesus will challenge our pride. Now, I imagine that doesn't exactly really sound that attractive. You know, if you think about it, 48% of us think that we have a good or better idea about how to run the universe I wonder what that percentage would be about how to run our own lives. If half of us think we can run the universe with wisdom, is there anyone here that doesn't think he or she can run your life better than God? And one of the major themes of this passage is that we need some sort of reconnection to reality, a reality check, if you will, that a reminder that maybe we're not as smart and as capable as we are. Not that we're a dead, dirty dog, but maybe, just maybe, we're not as in touch as we think we are. I think we see this in this passage in a really profound way. I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus' interaction with Peter uh, is, is very specific. So, for example... Um, you remember when Peter was denying Jesus, they were seated around a fire with a bunch of people. So Jesus brings Peter to a very similar setting, seated around a fire with all of his disciples. And then Jesus asks him this question, do you love me? Which is sort of the flip side of someone who had just denied even knowing Jesus. So there's this setting, there's this content that is familiar. And then Jesus asks him the question three times, the same number of times that Peter had disowned or denied even knowing who Jesus was. 
Jesus is setting the stage here. He's bringing Peter back to a similar place, a similar setting, similar content, similar form to really drive a point home here. It's a super reality check. It's a reminder to Peter of what had happened. And when you hear this story, you might think, man, Jesus, you're really twisting the knife in here, aren't you? I mean, not one thing, not two things, but three things here. And, you know, I think in some ways he is and that he's making this point so clearly. But the thing about Jesus that many, many people have experienced is that when he speaks to something in our life that needs to change, his goal is not to beat us down. And if there's a knife, it's a scalpel pointed right at that thing. And it may hurt sometimes, but it's not going to do collateral damage. It's just going to get to the root of the problem. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's not that Jesus wants to put Peter in his place. But here's the thing. I think Jesus loves Peter. And when we have an inflated view of ourselves, the truth is that we we make bad husbands. We make bad wives, parents, friends. We live emptier existences. We have more shallow relationships. Pride takes away our ability to be vulnerable, to be honest about our weaknesses. And right along with that, that means we have less grace for the people around us. Can you imagine what that does to our relationships, to community. And left unchallenged, um, we become judgmental. Notice what Peter says here. Everyone else, everyone else might turn away those weaklings, but I won't, never. Pride keeps us. It's not our friend. It keeps us from happy, engaged, full, healthy relationships and lives. It needs to be challenged. It needs to be cut out. And the the challenge of pride in our lives, though, is not easy. You know, it's scary to return to reality and realize that in some ways we have failed and that in many ways we're not enough on our own. Pride tells us the opposite. You know, a little bit ago I took this personality exam called the Enneagram. It's interesting. I love it. <laughs> Someone else loves it here too, I heard. It, it's, cha- it, it, it's the one personality test I've ever taken that's very challenging as well. It doesn't just tell you how great you are, like what your talents and gifts are and how that's unique and special and awesome. That's in there. But it also shows you the flip side of people like you and the weaknesses or the, or the common root sin of their lives and what it tends to be. Um, I showed up as a nine personality on the test, which means I'm a, I'm a peacemaker. Uh, people feel comfortable around me. I can bring people together. And I think that's true. The flip side of it is I like to think there are no problems. I want things to be okay so I can relax. Nines tend to be laid back. I'm very laid back. Being laid back isn't a problem, but if you ignore problems, it's a problem. Or if you see opportunities as just bothers and problems, you lose out. Just this last week, um, 
Beck and I were talking about redoing our house, and she mentioned something that would be a big improvement. And my response was, oh. All I could think was how much work it would be, how t- what a terrible carpenter I am, how I'd never be able to do it. Which is a crappy way to look at the world. It was a good idea. Hopefully it gets done this summer. Some of you can help me. <laughs> but, you know, in my pride, I've always thought my laid-back nature was a strength, and in some ways it is. But I've also judged people who weren't like me, who weren't as laid back. Why can't they just relax? Why can't we just take it easy? And as they're noticing challenges and opportunities and problems, I'm getting stuck. And I'm judging people around me. That's what pride does. You get stuck and you end up judgmental. But it's a hard pill to swallow because sometimes the things that are very the strengths of our personalities are also our biggest weaknesses. But what we see in this passage, and here's a ray of hope that's more than a ray, is that when we're the most aware of our failures, Jesus is the nearest to us. Jesus will sustain us in our failures. That's another major theme of this passage at our lowest points in life, God will not put us down or pile on or give up on us. Remember that everyone in this passage that Jesus interacts with let him down. Every single one of them left him. Not one stayed with him. All of his disciples, not just Peter, they abandoned him when he was arrested. They all scattered. Yet here Jesus is sitting around a campfire with them approaching them, engaging them, investing in them, believing in them. And with Peter, notice this, even as Jesus reminds him of his failure, he affirms his future. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. You failed, but I'm putting you in charge. You failed, but you're going to be a great leader. You failed, but I trust you more than anyone else, to lead this new fledgling church. And then in verse 18, he says, very truly, I tell you. So he's emphasizing, it's not just I tell you, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Talking about Peter's death. He's telling Peter, I know that you have failed in the past, but you will be faithful in the end. When push comes to shove, you're not going to deny me. That's who you are. That's who I see. Jesus isn't in the business of tearing people down. He may challenge our pride, but his aim is to see us become everything he knows that we can be. Isaiah 42 3, it's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And it says this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Maybe this is a season in your life where you're a bruised reed. You feel like a smoldering wick. Whatever the reason, maybe something at home, maybe it's something at work, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a major disappointment. Maybe it feels like everything in life in general. 
Let me just suggest this. If there's one encouragement from this passage, it very well might be that it suggests that you're actually in a good place, that Jesus is nearer than you think, and that Jesus won't snuff you out. He won't break you down, but he'll come alongside you and remind you of who you can be, even in the middle of your greatest disappointment, your greatest failure. He'll sustain you. And this presence, especially in the times when we're most aware of our failures, puts us in touch with one more thing, that we can experience authentic love. We talked about authentic love, I think, in week two, so I'm not going to define it for you in detail, but let me just ask you something. Think about it this way. I think there's a picture of it in this passage. Why does Peter jump out of the boat? I mean, they're not really far from shore, the story says, and why not just ride the boat into the dock? And I think the answer is simple. I think Peter is just so happy to see Jesus. It reminded me of a scene from a movie. Maybe you've seen this, but I think it was something, something like this. <laughs> sea legs. Well, you ain't got no legs, Lieutenant Dang. <laughs> yes, I know that. <laughs> you wrote me a letter, you idiot. Well, well, Captain Forrest Gump. I had to see this for myself. <laughs> and I told you if you were ever a shrimp boat captain, that I'd be your first mate. Well, here I am. I am a man of my word. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, but don't you be thinking that I'm going to be calling you sir. No, sir. It's my boat. <laughs> so, I don't know if Peter was quite the knucklehead that Forrest Gump is. But I think the emotion that we see there is similar. He was just so happy to see Jesus. He jumped out of the boat like an idiot. Swam to him when the boat was going to be in shore like a minute later. And the reason I think this is so significant is because the story we read today, the miraculous cast of fish, if you were here week one, it sounds really familiar, doesn't it? So many of the details are the same. 
They've been fishing all night. They don't catch anything. Jesus says, throw it on the other side. Try again. They do. They have this amazing catch of fish that they have trouble hauling in. Do you remember that? It's the same scene again. But if you remember, in week one, Peter's reaction to what happens is he falls to his knees and he says, Get away from me, Jesus. I'm a sinful man. The same thing happens this week. Same scenario. Up all night fishing, don't catch anything. Throw it over one more time. They get this miraculous catch of fish. And this time, Peter dives towards Jesus. And he can't wait to get there. Why? Because he's experienced something with Jesus. Authentic love. He's seen Jesus for three years. He's seen him go to the cross and be as vulnerable as you possibly can be. He gets something about Jesus. And so he runs to him or he dives towards him. What's changed? Peter has experienced authentic love from Jesus. A love that's vulnerable, a love that's unconditional, a love that was displayed on the cross. He's seen that. It's the love that won't break a bruised reed, that won't snuff out a smoldering wick. And this is what can replace pride in our lives if we want to follow Jesus. The experienced reality of being truly really authentically loved can fill and power and fuel a life in a way that pride simply cannot. And it doesn't have to happen in low times in our lives. I think it's more difficult, but we can choose to humble ourselves too. There's even famous Bible passages that says, humble yourself, make the choice. You can do simple things. Who is one person in your life that really you can't see how they can give anything to you. You don't see the personal benefit in that relationship. And by serving them, you really have nothing to gain. What can you do for them this week? Just because you know you've received freely from God and you want to freely give. Maybe you've been looking into the idea of following Jesus for a long time. Maybe you've been playing with it, you've been thinking about it, but today you're realizing that maybe there's a pride thing that's keeping you from engaging. And you're starting to realize you do need Jesus and you know it. Today you can make a choice to turn in a Godward direction, to look to Jesus, to dive towards him. And then if you're up for that, you can just talk to someone on the prayer team. No one will know what you're coming up for. You could have a broken foot you can pray for. Although that probably you'd have crutches, so maybe that's not the best example. (laughs) People will listen to you, and they'll talk with you, and they'll pray with you. Maybe you need to experience authentic love this week. And you struggle with experiencing grace. I think that's probably most of us. Maybe it's a good week to let someone pray for you. Or just to reach out to God in worship. Ask him to make these things real to you. Another thing you can do, you've been in these power four groups, many of you. Some of you are, some of you aren't. Hopefully, whatever position you are in life, you do have people in your life that you know at least a little bit who know you. 
You can choose to be vulnerable with them, to let them know some of your weaknesses, some of the things you're struggling with, to let go of pride of having it all together, and let someone or someone's in. And on the flip side, whoever's in your power four, whoever's in your life, who's on your team, you can show them grace when they're vulnerable, without judging them. And I'll just say this. If you're in a power four group, power four groups are groups of three to five, sometimes six people that decided to meet each week of this series uh, just to say what's going on in their lives and pray for each other. Some of them did some reflections together and things like that. If you started that, if you did that for six weeks, keep it going. You don't have to meet every week. But maybe what you could do is decide, all right, we're going to meet once a month for a year just to keep up with, with each other and see what God does. And in a year, maybe we, don't, maybe we say, all right, well, that was it. But if you've got something started, keep it going. And all of these are actually small ways that we can humble ourselves so that we can respond to and follow Jesus today in a real way. Let's pray. Oh, God, who am I to talk about pride? What we pray for is mercy and grace, that we could see you more clearly, that your love would be more obvious to us in ways that breaks down um, our hubris, our pride. Help us to see things more clearly and help us to develop lifestyles where we don't have to hit the lowest of lows like Peter did to be in touch with this in a way that builds us up because we realize your love, not in a way that tears us down. We need grace for all of that. Amen.